Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. The Trump administration has imposed a, another round of crippling sanctions on Iran that will cut it off from the global financial system. European countries warn that the sanctions will make humanitarian trade with Iran close to impossible and worsen the suffering of the Iranian people. According to the Washington Post, the sanctions were heavily pushed behind the scenes by the Israeli government and a regime change think tank in Washington known as the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Speaking to Rush Limbaugh, President Trump used an expletive to threaten Iran. Right. And Iran knows that. And they've been put on notice. If you fuck around with us, if you do something bad to us, we are going to do things to you that have never been done before. Joining me now is Asil Rod, Research Fellow at the National Iranian American Council. Asil, welcome back to Pushback. Thank you for having me. These sanctions, Iran is already under heavy U.S. sanctions. What do these new sanctions do? You know, what it really is is just adding a, a, another layer uh, or actually what, you know, uh, FTD has called a sanctions wall. Um, to an already dire situation. So, you know, in terms of humanitarian trade, that's already been impeded. And we've seen real life on the ground uh, consequences to the sanctions that currently exist. Uh, Iranians are having difficulty with specialized medicines, for instance, medicines having to do with chemotherapy medicines, right? So there's there's this idea that because Iranian, because Iran creates so much of its own medicine, it produces so much of its own medicine, then that means there's no shortages. But specifically, there are shortages of life-saving medicines that they don't have access to or materials that they don't have access to. So that's already happening. That's before these sanctions. The What the concern is and why you see European leaders and Europeans that are saying, listen, this is going to impede any ability to get humanitarian aid in, forget trade, forget the fact that under the JCPOA, which was an agreement that was between uh, the, that the United States was party to and sadly claims it is party to even though to quit. Um, under that, you could do financial transactions with Iran. All of the sanctions that are in place that were put back by the United States uh, was done unilaterally. And that, that's why we saw a rejection at the United Nations when the U.S. tried to put U.N. sanctions back. But the reality of it is the U.S. is the most powerful country in the world. And when it put secondary sanctions on other countries, it really doesn't make these banks that have to um, that have to do the transactions, they're not incentivized to do it. So what you see is overcompliance. So even if there are uh, exemptions for humanitarian aid, the banks are overcomplying. And so the humanitarian aid is not actually getting in. And by humanitarian aid, it means it doesn't mean that people are giving charity to Iran. It means that Iran is trying to buy supplies and it can't because the transactions aren't going through. So what you have now with this new round of sanctions is what, whereas the primary sanctions that the U.S. already had on Iran were always in place, now those the secondary sanctions for other countries that want to do transactions with Iran, the U.S. The US will uh, sanction those countries as well. So basically, there's no avenue of having transactions with Iran. And the argument that will be made, that has been made, is that there's still a humanitarian channel open. So you could say that the intention behind the architects of, of the sanctions regime is not to impede humanitarian aid specifically, but they are cognizant of the fact that it will. And they simply don't care as long as they continue the agenda that they have. So 
you know, you can say you're not targeting humanitarian sanctions, you're not targeting humanitarian goods, but the reality on the ground already is that they're not getting those goods. We heard the same thing from Bill Clinton in the 1990s when he was justifying his uh, sanctions on Iraq, and he claimed there were all these great humanitarian exemptions. Meanwhile, the two UN coordinators for humanitarian aid in Iraq resigned because they didn't want to take part in what they called was basically genocide, killing ordinary Iraqis um, with the U.S. sanctions that they were helping to implement. And the same thing is happening now, obviously, in Venezuela and Syria, other targets of U.S. regime change. But what do you think is the U.S. strategy here? This comes so close to the election. Are they trying to provoke Iran into some sort of military action? And what do you think Iran does here? Do they wait out to see the results of the election or do they possibly take action before the election? So much in the same way that I wouldn't discuss Iran's government as as a monolith, you know, like the the government that makes X and Y and Z decisions, you know, there's there's competing there are competing ideas within those governments. So, for example, on the Iranian side, um, when when Jawad Zarif, who's the foreign minister, was negotiating the nuclear deal, there were conservative MPs in Iran who were against it all the time. Right. So. In the U.S., I think you have to take the same sort of nuanced approach. The, this administration, even within the administration, there are contradictions. It's hard to tell what this administration's policy is exactly because of those contradictions. And that's why they've had a sort of incoherent policy, I mean, on a lot of fronts, but specifically since we're talking about Iran, on Iran. You have a president, you have President Trump, who says, who has said, at least on multiple occasions, that regime change is not what he is seeking, that he wants to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, that he certainly doesn't want a war. I mean, that's he's been outspoken about that even before he was president. That was part of his platform was to end endless wars, bring troops home. Um, he talks about the Iraq war as if it was a, a disaster, because it was, but at least as if he believes that. So you have him. But then you have someone who's Secretary of State, and this is obviously the how we deal with foreign uh, entities with foreign countries is under the purview of the Secretary of State. You have a Secretary of State in Mike Pompeo um, who has, by all appearances, a very different approach. Um, he doesn't have any problem with a conflict with Iran. And so you that's why you have this contradictory approach. Uh, the idea that maximum pressure has worked really depends on what was your goal with maximum pressure. If your goal of maximum pressure was to bring Iran to the negotiating table, clearly that hasn't worked, they haven't come back. If the goal was to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, well, Iran now has uh, much more, you know, much they're much close able to do so, even though they've said many, many times that that's not the intention of their program, but they are m much closer to being able to do so now after the US quit the deal than before. Um, if it's to stop Iran's, you know, behavior that is against U.S. interests and U.S. policies and what the U.S. doesn't like in, in the region, that also hasn't stopped. You actually, you know, there's discussions about closing the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. If, if the goal of this policy was to stop all of that behavior, then we wouldn't be even considering something like that. So, so what's the goal of the policy? If the goal of the policy is to starve and suffocate Iranians, it's working very well. Um, and I'm not saying that that was the objective, but is the objective then to foment some kind of unrest in the country? That's also, we've seen that over, over you know, many years after, uh, after the U.S. quit the deal. Now, let me be clear, none of that is to say that the Iranian government is not itself culpable 
in how it represses its people. It is. There's no question to that. But what we're discussing is the rule of the United States. And U.S. sanctions and what it's done has not hurt the government. It's hurt people. It's people who can't afford medicine. It's people who can no longer afford foods. Um, you know, I have contact with people in Iran beyond my own sort of like family. I have friends in Iran. Um, I discuss all of these matters with people on a daily basis. And I know people, solid middle class, middle upper class, who now have cut meat out of their diets. So you can't even imagine what's happening to the lower classes, to poorer people in the country, which there are millions of. Yeah, look, in terms of government repression, the U.S. government represses its own people, too, as we've seen with the recent protests over police brutality and racism. I mean, go down the list of all the crimes the U.S. Uh, inflicts on its own people and across the world. But I don't see anybody agitating for, you know, uh, the world to cut off food and medicine from ordinary Americans. Let me ask you about the role that I mentioned of the Israeli government and the... Can I say something? Oh, yeah, yeah, please, yeah, yeah. Because it's so important that you brought that up. Um, exactly. That's the exact point, which is, look, criticizing, saying that we should prevent a, a war in Iran, that if precedent, if anything in the last 20 years, I mean, we can go much further back than that, but since you know we have short-term memories, let's just go the last 20 years. If it's shown us anything, it's that interventions in, in the region have not, have not given us democratic states. They have cost trillions of dollars in American resources, uh, while Americans lack resources in their own country. Thousands of American troops have died. Hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians have died. And you just see immense destruction. So saying that you want to prevent something like that from happening and that people shouldn't suffer under sanctions does not mean that you're not critical of an authoritarian state in Iran. You can be critical of that, just like you can be critical of the US, which many Americans are, in fact, it's built into the Constitution, your ability to be critical of your own government. So that doesn't mean that those of us who are critical of it would invite this kind of punishment, this kind of collective punishment to the American people. So that's the precise point. We would never advocate for, you know, the language that's used about these sanctions is, I think, especially appalling. If you if you read these sort of op-eds, things that are written, things that Iran hawks actually the turns of phrase that they use. They talk about choking the economy or cutting off the oxygen of the Iranian financial sector. It is fascinating to me that that's the turn of phrase you would use in a pandemic in which people are literally suffocating to death. So it's, you know, how we're going about it, I think, is is what's problematic, not the criticisms of the state. You can criticize the state, but that doesn't mean that 83 million people should suffer from it. Well, I certainly think criticism from people who actually care about Iran is totally fair, but the people running this policy could care less about government repression, whether it's in Iran or anywhere else. What they care about in the case of Iran, I think, is pretty obvious. When they talk about Iran's malign behavior, they don't like the fact that Iran resists U.S. aggression in the region, whether it's support for the Saudi mass murder in Yemen, the proxy war in Syria, uh, support for uh, uh, the Israeli government and Iran's support for Hezbollah in fighting back against Israel and its, you know, uh, attacks on Lebanon going back many years. That, I think, is the problem that the U.S. government is trying to eliminate is simply a country's right to defend itself. And that's why I think it's interesting to see the bipartisan consensus around that. But let me ask you about the role of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy sees in the Israeli government. 
I don't want to exaggerate their role because I do think this is a U.S. government policy and people like Mike Pompeo don't need to be convinced by the Israeli government to murder Iranians. That's that's his agenda, too. But it was it has been reported by The Washington Post that they were instrumental. I mentioned before that FDD is a think tank in Washington, which is not quite accurate, actually, because what they are effectively are. And this was exposed by a documentary that Al Jazeera made called The Lobby, although it got censored in the U.S., but this documentary exposed that the FED is effectively an agent for the Israeli government. That the Israeli government has launched a covert campaign to gather information on American citizens. We have three different sub-campaigns. Data gathering, working on activist organization, money trail. The Israeli official named one organization that was a partner in its covert campaign the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, or FDD. This is something that only a country with its resources can do the best. We have FDD. We have others working on this. And it's been reported that Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, reportedly was a bit resistant to these sanctions, but was then convinced by Israeli officials as well as, well as the FDD. So talk to us about their role. Well, I mean, you... you brought up one part of the report that's really important is that there was actually to this new set of sanctions resistance within uh, certain figures in the Trump administration. And we can guess who's resistant and, and we can guess who is not resistant um, and who would have pushed this policy. But yeah, the role that um, money interests play in our politics, uh, I think new, and I don't think, you know, if we're going to have an honest conversation about it, this isn't, it's not unique to foreign policy, right? I mean, our the argument that exists currently within the U.S. is that, you know, how democratic is our system if it doesn't really matter what the majority of Americans think or believe in terms of the policy that's actually carried out. So then where is where why are policies being carried out then if they're not being carried out based on the interests of Americans, based on the desires of Americans, then what is actually um, what is influencing our policy? And it becomes, you know, lobby groups, it becomes uh, foreign entities, but of course, our, you know, our overt alliance with Israel and pushing uh, policies that the Israeli government, or not even the Israeli government, to be fair, again, no government is a monolith, but at least a figure like Bibi um, sees as appropriate, it really questions the integrity of our own democratic system. Because why are we pushing a policy that let's go beyond the fact the, the simple humanitarian part of it, the fact that, you know, as human beings, we should care that our policies are crushing the lives of other human beings in another country. But let's actually look at it from the very framing that this administration uses. This administration stands for this notion of America first. And yet the policies that we are enacting don't help America in any way. Well, you know, when the when the JCPOA was first uh, when it was first basically like enacted, um, one of the first things Iran did was to, I think it was, I don't know if it was $20 billion or $40 billion, I can't remember the exact number, but a multi-billion dollar deal with Boeing. That's an American company. Um, they weren't selling them weapons. Uh, they were selling them airplanes so that their airplanes wouldn't crash and kill civilians. Uh, and that's American jobs. That's American revenue. That's something that actually helps this country. And we wanted to squash that for what reason? 
The JCPOA itself, the nuclear deal, helps keep us safer. Why? Because nuclear proliferation is a very important thing that we have to deal with. It's an existential threat to our entire species. So it's not just that Iran should be under some kind of supervision in terms of their nuclear program. Everyone should be. You have Saudi right now who's pursuing a nuclear program. Are they going to be under the same supervision? Because the reality of it is these things affect us. If there is a conflict with Iran, if there is a war, how is that not going to affect Americans? Just like the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq have, right? You, there was just an article the other day that said um, the children of, Af of uh, war vets, war veterans who have gone to Afghanistan are not also going to Afghanistan. That's generations of Americans fighting the exact same war, all for naught. So really the fact that we allow any foreign entity, any foreign country or any foreign power to have an influence in policies that affect Americans really, in my opinion, under undermines the notion of our democracy. So in terms of the Democrats here, correct me if I'm wrong, I have not heard an unequivocal commitment from Joe Biden that he will rejoin the Iran nuclear deal, aka his own administration's nuclear deal, the one that was negotiated under President Obama. I've heard his people say that Iran will need to meet certain conditions. Is that your understanding as well? Or do I have that wrong? Well, there's, I, I understand what you mean by the, the sort of conflicts of maybe his advisors and what he has said himself. You know, when asked, I think it was in one of the uh, Democratic primary debates, uh, when asked straightforwardly, would you return to the deal? You know, you raised his hand like basically everybody else on stage and said yes. So I think there is a, a clear reason why, uh, that a clear indication from Biden himself that he would return to the deal. And I think he's said that himself. Um, but just like any other administration, it, with the advisors that he has, there's potentially an internal debate in terms of not, not the idea of returning. I think it's clear that they want to return to the deal, but whether or not they would immediately return or under what conditions they would return. Meaning, would there be would they try to use some kind of leverage to actually negotiate uh, more points in returning to the deal? Or would it be a straight return and then after a return and Iran coming back into compliance then they negotiate further. And I think that there is some kind of internal debate about that, but I don't think there's a clear indication of uh, which way they're going to go. But Biden himself has said he would return to the deal because like, as you pointed out, I mean, it was the deal of his, it was sort of a foreign policy um, achievement of the administration that he was a part of. And it was a significant achievement. You know, you look at the relationship of the United States and Iran over the last 40 years, and it's consistently adversarial. So detente with the U.S. and Iran was a huge breakthrough. And it didn't mean that now they were allies and friends. It just meant that they were not on a path to constant conflict. And something else to note on the Iranian side, in this, in this discourse, in this debate, there are often people who say things like, well, you know, the Iranians, uh, because of their political rhetoric, which is very openly anti-American, right? Because of that political rhetoric, uh, you know, they're never going to negotiate with the U.S. That that goes against their like reason for being. And it's mind boggling that people don't understand that that's exactly what the nuclear deal was. That was Iran coming to the table with the United States and coming to an agreement. So that's not the case. We have, you know, very recent history points to the fact that that's not the case. And the line from the foreign minister of Iran has repeatedly been if the U.S. comes back to the deal. We'll come back to the deal. Um, it's also important to note that it was the U.S. that quit the deal, right? Iran was in full compliance with the deal. Even one full year 
after the U.S. quit the deal. Because essentially Iran was saying, we're going to stay in and comply as long as we get the incentives that we were promised in the deal. And those incentives were not, you know, can you just give us money? The incentives were lifting sanctions and then being able to be part of an international economy. That's that's really what it was. And once the European powers could not hold up their end of the bargain because of U.S. sanctions, because of secondary sanctions, that's when Iran started to actually um, breach parts of the deal. Yeah. You know, in terms of the recent history of who's been willing to engage in diplomacy, people who say that Iran has been rejectionist are forgetting that during the Bush administration, Iran delivered a sweeping letter to the Bush administration offering to negotiate on multiple issues, including even support for Hezbollah, if I remember correctly. Bush ignored it. Under Obama, there were similar proposals. Obama uh, reject, tried to kill a deal brokered by Brazil to facilitate uh, uh, some um, a nuclear deal, basically like a mini nuclear deal involving Iran and Russia. And Obama rejected that as well. And Obama also rejected calls for a nuclear-free Middle East that Iran had endorsed because, of course, Israel possesses nuclear weapons and no administration has been willing to touch that. But going to President Trump, he also said in his interview with Rush Limbaugh, he basically threatened terror against Iran. He said, you don't see the terror the way you used to see the terror. And they know if they do anything against us, they'll pay 1,000 fold. So that's Trump. And he also said that if he wins re-election, that we can have a new nuclear deal with Iran within one month. If Trump wins re-election, do you think that that puts these two countries on a path to war? I mean, it's so interesting because everything you just said that he said was basically a contradiction of itself, right? You you don't threaten, and this is basic, this is not about, you know, uh, it's not like a complex theory of how politics work. I mean, it's, there's a basic psychology behind, you don't threaten someone right before you want to negotiate a deal with them. Um, and threaten them in such sort of brazen terms, right? The fact that you you use expletives when you're the president of the United States, the fact that you say that you're going to go back a thousand times worse. I mean, that's, there are, there is international law in terms of war because be, to prevent exactly that from happening, right? It doesn't, uh, an act of aggression is then followed by an act of aggression that's a thousand times worse. And this isn't new. When you remember back in January, first of all, in the U.S., under the Trump administration, assassinated an extrajudicial assassination of an Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani. And one of the things that Trump tweeted then was about targeting Iranian cultural sites, which is a war crime. So you don't threaten war crimes and then say, now let's come to the table to negotiate. That's typically, you know, that you're not going to engender um, trust from the other side. But in terms of uh, the election, if he is reelected, um, that will change the calculus on the Iranian side. And you have about a eight month period before there's an election in Iran as well. It's hard to determine what the calculus will be on the Iranian side, because on one hand, I mean, you can make the argument that they might find themselves in a position where uh, because of the weight of the economic pressure that they should come to the deal and negotiate. That's an argument that can be made. At the same time, their calculus might be, well, we've resisted all along and if we give in, 
then we will have invited this pressure. Then that means that this pressure works. And so any anything can can be negotiated under pressure. So and it's difficult. It's really difficult to tell which direction they will go in. But what we do know is that they are waiting for that. It doesn't seem like they would wait. Well, we have like 24 days, I think, before the elections right now. I they've waited out this long. I don't think they're going to take any uh, significant steps, especially in terms of these new sanctions that have been put on. It'll take some time to see how they actually evolve and how it affects things on the ground. So I don't think that they're going to take any sort of rash actions before the election. But certainly their calculus will change depending on who the president is. And if it's a president Biden, then I think they're going to be much more open to coming to the table, negotiating a deal, um, going back to the deal, I should say, first, and then possibly negotiating, you know, more, a more for more deal, which has already been proposed by Iran. And I think just to editorialize for a second here, that people who don't want to see war with Iran and don't want their tax dollars to go towards killing Iranian children and denying Iranian civilians food and medicine should think about that, should think about the fact that for all the negative things about Joe Biden, there are stark differences here between him and Trump on this existential issue. Um, as we wrap up, so let me ask you about COVID. We haven't talked about it yet, how Iran is doing with the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, well, actually, there was reports this week, uh, I believe it was earlier this week, that they, uh, they're they hitting a third wave. And in this third wave right now, the number of cases and number of deaths um, are records in Iran, for Iran's uh, cases, of course. But that means that, you know, they're, they're having a very difficult time for multiple reasons. Uh, one, the government itself uh, has said that, you know, people aren't abiding by the restrictions. And that's obviously a problem that's, that's global, where we're seeing it in the United States as well but also because they don't have the ability to shut down the economy, right? They don't have the ability to do these shutdowns because of how it affects your economy. I mean, the US is a perfect example. We're the largest economy in the world. We're the richest country in the world and people are suffering under, and we never really shut down. So, so you can imagine in a country that's already crippled by sanctions and whose economy has is shrinking, their ability to actually shut down is very, very limited. And so it puts them at greater risk. On top of that, there are these sanctions um, which prevent them from getting medical resources. It's not like there's, hey, there's a cure for COVID and we're not letting that through, but there's, you know, you have hospitals, hospitals need supplies. You have all sorts of things that go into the ability of a country to combat this virus. And that's why there have been calls from the very beginning um, from back in February, if I'm not, February or March, if I'm not mistaken, February was when Iran's first peak hit, and that's before the U.S. became the hardest hit country. But there's calls from the U.N., from European leaders, um, from the WHO, basically every, I think even the Pope has said, you have to lift sanctions in this situation, even if it's only temporary, for the crisis, for the pandemic. Because if they don't have all the resources available to them, how can they possibly combat, combat something that countries that have all those resources, like the United States, are having such a difficult time combating? So there's really no question as to the human cost of sanctions during the pandemic. And I think that's, you know, I think that's fairly intuitive. Uh, so we're going to wrap. So any final thoughts? No, you know, I think the last uh, thing I would say is you brought up uh, Joe Biden. And um, I, I know that for a lot of people uh, who are 
progressives who identify as progressives or see themselves as further on the left in the political spectrum that exists in the U.S. Joe Biden seems like a centrist candidate. He's not he's not the favorite candidate for some. He is this favorite. He is a favorite candidate, but obviously people who are centrist themselves. But you emphasize the point, and I just want to reemphasize it, which is there are clear distinctions between these two people, between Trump and Biden. So even if Biden is not necessarily the ideal candidate that someone would have wanted who leans further to the left, the alternative, um, and I'm going to bring in Noam Chomsky because he's brilliant. And he's more than and he's more than welcome on on pushback. You should get him. He's great. The alternative is too dangerous. And, and that's the reality of it. We're not just facing and this it goes beyond, you know, policies about Iran. It, it even goes beyond our own domestic threats right now, the, the threat to our democracy. There are existential threats that this world faces. And this person, President Trump, is not fit to deal with them. And just as an example, so we know that we definitely know that that's the case. You can just look at how he dealt with a pandemic, which is a global issue. It required global cooperation and we didn't do it at any turn. And that's why we are the worst hit country on the planet. So we have to think about that when it comes to the elections, which are only a few weeks away. Asal Rod, Research Fellow at the National Iranian American Council. Thanks very much. Thank you.